I've asked uh, Tiffany to come this morning and read our scripture for this morning. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 5. In the same way, you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders. And all of you dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God. And at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. This is God's word. So if you're new here today, my name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. And we just want to say welcome. We'd love to get to know you. Uh, There's a welcome card in the back of the seats here. We'd love to get to know you that way if you're new. And uh, you'll hear more about that at the end of the service. A little over a year ago, my sister called me on the phone, and she had that kind of tone in her voice where you knew she was going to drop something kind of serious, right? And um, she said, Zach, I need you to know that I've been going to AA meetings, and I'm an alcoholic. And that was kind of a shocker to me because it was totally hidden, and there's a long story there. But what was really cool is just a few weeks ago, we got to go to an AA meeting with her. And the reason why that was so cool is because she has been celebrating a year of sobriety um, for, you know, almost the past uh, 13, 14 months. And so a few weeks ago, we got to celebrate that year of sobriety with her. And it was amazing. Um, I'd never been to an AA meeting before. I don't know if any of y'all have, but it was a, a really amazing learning experience for me. And here's what I learned. Immediately when I walked in, I was struck by the, just the environment in the room, just kind of the tone of the place. Big meeting uh, in this basement of this hall and probably 60 or 70 people crammed in this room. But what immediately struck me was the diversity. Rich, poor, blue collar, white collar, young, old. I mean, alcohol addiction is no respecter of persons, right? But the second thing that struck me was the tone in the room. It was immediately, you could just sense, a welcoming environment. Uh, uh, An environment where people could be received and just loved, cared for, listening to each other, loving presence, very supportive, accepting, humble. And I was sitting there thinking, man, I'm going to talk to the vine about this. Because there's something we can learn here. There's something really beautiful we can learn here. I think our church could grow in becoming more like an AA meeting. And what I mean by that, it might sound funny, right? But here's what I mean. When you're brought to your knees through addiction to alcohol and seeing relationships destroyed, loss of jobs, maybe even jail time, this places you in a very humble position, does it not? And when you step into an AA meeting, the implication is that you're ready to lay aside the pretending that everything's fine and that you can manage your sin all on your own. And you have to come to the point where you, where you quit pretending and admit that you need help. And the number one sign of humility is arm raised, yep, I need help. And that's the main marker of an AA meeting. It's just like the movies. It was just like the movies. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's like, hi, my name is Zach, and I'm an alcoholic. And that's what they do. And what that is, is 
um, just an, uh, an admission that I'm broken and needy. I need help. That's why they do that. And, and here's the cool thing. Here's the thing for us to learn. When you have a community that is orbiting around those kind of values of a mutual confession that I'm broken and needy and I need help, that creates a beautiful vibe. That creates a really cool community, right? See, here's the opposite. Communities that are built on pretense and pretending and posturing and faking that you have it all together are really challenging places for life and growth and blessing. Think about your own experience. Have you been in a community? Maybe it's like the junior high dumbness of like cliques. And you got to wear the right clothes and pretend that everything's cool or high school or whatever. Maybe you've been in adult communities like that. But see, when we lay the pride aside and embrace that we truly don't have it all together, we need help, and confess that apart from outside intervention, we're not going to make it, and everyone is united around these feelings, it creates a really beautiful community. So here now, how can the church learn from an AA meeting? Well, should not people who believe that we're utterly powerless to save ourselves— and their only hope for salvation is not internal, it's external coming in, right? My only hope for salvation is not me, it's Jesus and him on a cross on my behalf and his tomb being empty that shows resurrected to new life. Should not those kind of people be the people that have nothing to hide? You got no puffed up chest of a check out how, how much I got it all together. Right? I got no reason to posture. See, see the, if you hear anything, if you say you're a Christian, you have to be reminded that the cross vividly displays and declares that we don't have it all together. Right? Like when you become a Christian, you have to admit that I can't do this. That's why you become a Christian, because you're struck with your neediness. God, would you help me? Would you be merciful to me, a sinner? Because apart from that, I got nothing. That's Christianity. That's how you become a Christian. I can't manage this sin on my own. And because of God's great love for us, we're struck with the fact that God has come and managed it for us. That's grace. He didn't have to. He wasn't forced to. But because of his great love for us, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. He poured himself out for us. God's wrath was poured out not on us as we deserve for being sinners, but on God in Jesus. God himself bore that for us. And so instead of wrath, what do we get? We get life. Life in Jesus now, life in Jesus for eternity. So here's the deal. At the foot of the cross, only humility can live. In the shadow of the cross, all pretense and posturing vanishes. Can you imagine being at the foot of the cross and looking to your left and your right and going, man, I'm, thank good I'm not like this loser. Like That doesn't happen at the foot of the cross. When you know that it's your sin that put God there. So, when we are united 
around our mutual sense of neediness and brokenness and humility that comes from knowing that I'm not God and he is God and I'm a sinner and he's perfectly holy and he bridged that gap in the, in the gospel. When that happens and a community collectively embraces that line of thinking, that realization, man, it gets real beautiful. It gets real beautiful. And that's what this message is all about today. The blessing of humility and the danger of pride. The blessing of humility and the danger of pride. Let's look at it. Open your Bibles again or look to the screen if you don't have a Bible with you or you can use your device if you have that. Um, verse 5, 1 Peter 5, starting in verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Okay, so let's remember our context here. Two weeks ago, James preached a great message about the fancy way to say it would be church government. But how is the church organized and how is the church led? And we learned two weeks ago, as Peter's talking about the health of the church and the beauty of the church, the church needs healthy leaders. And healthy leaders are called elders. And the metaphor there is shepherds. Okay, so what do shepherds do? We don't have shepherds in our culture very much. Um, but in, a, in an ancient Middle Eastern culture, you had shepherds everywhere. And shepherds lead, guide, and provide for the sheep. And they don't beat up the sheep. They don't dominate the sheep. They lead and they guide and they provide for the sheep. And the sheep listen to the shepherd. And so that's the beauty of how the church should be organized. And so that's what James talked about. And so Peter is coming off of that, okay? You can see it in your Bible if you look at verses 1 of chapter 5 on down. And Peter's in that context, and he's talking about how leaders should be humble and not dominating the sheep. And it's like while I'm on the topic of humility in, in terms of elders and leaders in the church, let's just talk about all y'all, Okay? And this humility thing, it happens for all of you. That's what he's getting at here. Look at verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now all of you, clothe yourselves, all of you, see it there, with humility toward one another. Why? Because God, or for, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now I hate shopping. I hate shopping for clothes. I don't care about clothes. I'm, it's not, I mean, some of you are looking at me like, yeah, we can tell. Um, but at this stage of my life, I don't know why it is, uh, but like the, the shopping mall, just, man, just like it feels like it crushes my soul. Maybe it's the consumerism. It's the overstimulation of lights and sounds and images and, and, and smells. And, man, I just hate the mall. Um, I just I can't handle it. So my wife dresses me, so if you like what I'm wearing, you can thank her, not me. Um, but here's the deal. There's a word about clothing in this text. You see it? And when God tells me to dress a certain way, I want to dress that way. What does it say? Look at it. Clothe yourself, verse 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So that, that verb, to clothe yourself, that's, that's intentional. We're supposed to be dressed with humility. Not pride, but humility. See it there? Well, what does that mean? Well, it means this. Think about clothing. Clothing, when you meet someone or interact with someone, clothing is one of the first things that you might notice, right? You notice their clothes. But God is asking that people might notice those who love Jesus for something a little different than clothing. 
physical clothing. It's the clothing of humility. It's the clothing of humility. We are to put on humility. See, when people see us, they should be able to see our humility, and this should stand out way more than the clothes that we wear. It's good to be a nice dresser. There's nothing wrong with that. But how much better is it to be wearing the clothes of Jesus? How much better is it to put on the clothing of humility? And that's what Peter's saying. When people see you, what do they see? When people see you, what do they see? Would they say that one of the first things that they notice It's not how great a dresser you are. Maybe that's a good thing. But not that. But man, that person is humble. That person is gentle. That person is loving. That person is serving. That person is listening. So let's take it a step further, though, in the text. Look at the text. What does it say? Our humility should be towards something. It has an objective. It has an orientation. It has a, our humility has a landing point. Look, what does it say? Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Toward one another. All right? And look at what he says. He says, all of you, not just some of you, not just a few of you, not just the special ones or the ones that are, are on the margins or whatever. No, all of you. All of you. Humility toward one another. Now, everyone do this right now. It's awkward. Embrace it. Just look at each other. Okay? And look at what everyone's wearing. Okay? No judgment. No, no, no insults if you don't like what they're wearing. We're all family here. But just check it out. All right? Now, unless... You, like, called someone on the phone and intentionally wanted to be twinsies with somebody else. We're all probably going to be dressed different, right? Is that clear? I think that's clear this morning, right? We got any twinsies in the room? No? Okay. We did in the first service. It was awesome. Um, uh, so we're all dressed very differently. That's clear, right? But God is saying to us this morning through Peter In a spiritual sense, we should all walk in here each Sunday morning and be dressed exactly the same. Be dressed exactly the same. Look at it. All of you, be dressed in humility. We should all look exactly alike when it comes to embracing a lifestyle and just having that air about us of humility. So so see the idea here? Our humility has a communal intention. It has, a, it has an eye to the church being beautiful. He's writing to the church. The, the, the church having a communal, humble orientation and atmosphere and environment, that's a beautiful thing. That's a, that's a good thing. That's, that's what Peter is saying. Embrace this because it's for your blessing. So what does that look like? Practically speaking, speaking what does that look like? Well, it could, it could look like a lot of things, right? But I think it, it looks like a, a few main things. It looks like a concerted effort towards selflessness. And this is hard. Easy to say, hard to do. My orientation primarily is not me. That's hard to do. That's what God calls us to. That's what one of the ways humility manifests itself among us. When I interact with you, my orientation is, what can I do to be a blessing to you and not be selfish? That's selflessness. That's what humility looks like. It looks like listening. Right? 
We're dressed in humility when we're quick to listen and slow to speak. We don't have to be a know-it-all. And hey, guess what? I've got all this stuff that I want to impart unto you, so I'm just going to talk constantly. No, I'm going to embrace a, a humble posture. And so by default, I'm just assuming that you've got something that is probably maybe more important than what I have to say. But pride says it's all about me and it's all about what I want to say. But if it's humility, then that's probably going to look like listening. And notice that listening oftentimes always equates to the other person feel loved. If you're a good listener, you're probably a loving person. Not always, but probably 99% of the time. It looks like serving. We're dressed in humility when we're quick to see the needs of others and run to meet those needs. We don't have a sense of entitlement. We have a sense of gratitude to God for every breath that we breathe, and thus we're wanting to display that we get this, that God has been so gracious to me, so that's going to look like something horizontally in how I serve. No, I'm not all about my needs, and you better get around to meeting my needs. No, man, that's not how God treated me, so, so I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to serve others. So these are just a few ways, but you get the idea. Humility should be our clothing as a church family. So that's just the statement that Peter makes. But it's good for us to ask a follow-up question. Peter, why? Why? Should we do this? And he's a good author, and he knows that we want to ask why, and so he answers. Look at it. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Talked about that. Comma, for, here comes the why. Anytime you got a why question and you want to answer it in the Bible, look at the for or the because or the since, those three words that you see in your Bible, because you're about ready to get dropped. They're going to drop some knowledge on you, Okay? Here it comes. I'm going to answer your question. Here's the reason. Here's the grounding of my statement. Here's the logical ground that I'm standing on to make this statement about clothing true. What does it say? For, here's the reason, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Clothe yourself, all of you. Be dressed in humility. Look alike in humility on a Sunday morning. Why? Because God will be on the opposing team if you persist in pride. But if you persist in humility, he's going to be on your team. You see that? See that in the text? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. When I was in high school, I was a, I was a basketball player. And we were in, a, this is small town Iowa, okay, so this isn't like big-time high school athletics. Um, but there was a team in our conference that had a reputation of year after year cranking out elite athletes. And they had uh, typically in the area of football. And so over the years, they've had a lot of people go on to play in the NFL from this little tiny town in Iowa. And they were in our conference. And my senior year, we were playing this team from this small town, and they had this guy who was probably 6'5", 250, and no, like, no, no, no flabbiness at all. This is muscle, okay? And he also happened to run the 100-yard dash. So you got a guy, and he was good at it. You got a guy who's that big and that fast, that's an elite athlete, and that's scary. Because on my team, I would, I'm not a big guy. I was the biggest guy, okay? 
And, and so literally there was nothing we could do. When we saw that game on our schedule, it was like, oh, man, we got to deal with this guy. And so this guy, he went on to, to play about five, six, seven years with the Detroit Lions as a defensive lineman. So this guy was the real deal. It was not fun having him on the opposing team, right? I did not look forward to that Friday night when we had to play them. Nothing we could do against this guy, right? Just an elite athlete. Or think about this. Um, let's say you're running, we'll switch, switch sports. Let's say you're running the 4 by one relay in track. And you're maybe a decent athlete and you've got a decent team, you know, above average. And you line up to run the race on that day and you're in the starting blocks and you look to your right and there's Usain Bolt. you got a problem, right? Like that's not fun to have him on the opposing team. We can relate to that. The most dominant sprinter the world's probably ever seen. You, you don't have good prospects for winning. Now consider those scenarios, feel the weight of that, and then consider what Peter's writing here. Because this is a infinitely more dramatic of a picture if you think about it. What Peter is saying is that if you live a life of pride, it's not an NFL defensive lineman, it's not Usain Bolt on the opposing team, it's God himself on the opposing team. That's a scary prospect, right? Don't let that be lost on you this morning from God's word. That's a warning. That's a scary promise that God will oppose you. See that there? He opposes the proud. Peter's saying, you don't want this scenario. This is not a good scenario. And thanks be to God that he is so loving to warn us, just like I lovingly warn my kids, don't stick the knife in the electrical socket, right? You don't want that. That's a bad scenario for you. God does the same with his children. You don't want to persist in pride. Pride destroys. Think about it like this. The number one commandment, when, when, when someone came up to Jesus and said, Jesus, what's the number one commandment? What's the most important thing for me to remember? Jesus said, oh, I'll tell you. It's all about relationships. Relationship with God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and relationship with others. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love others. That's what's most important. What does pride do? Pride is antithetical to all of that. Pride is the opposite of that. Pride says it's not love God and love others, it's love me. It's all about me. You guys heard me say it before. Me, me, I love myself, I have my picture on my shelf. It's all about me. Look at me on the shelf. Look at that picture of me. Man, I'm awesome. Like, that's pride. And, and God is so faithful to warn us and say, don't go that way. Pride will destroy relationships. Divorce almost always can be boiled down to, I can't reconcile this thing because I have to get my way and the other person is feeling the same. You have that thing reciprocating. You see marriages destroyed. You see parent Children relationships, destroyed, pride. It's all about me. It's all about me and my way. I'm going to do my thing. Get out of my way. I'm prideful. I'm going to destroy this relationship. It could be at work. It could be in your small group. It could be at this church. It could be, I mean, how many churches just implode and divide because of pride? It happens all the time, tragically. I'll give you a story from my life where I felt the danger and the consequence of pride. 
um, many of you have heard this, but a lot of you are new. Um, about two years ago, I started experiencing, for a variety of reasons that I won't get into, I'm more than willing to talk about it if you want to know more. Um, but I started feeling some very irrational emotions, and I learned that this is classic anxiety and depression. And um, it was a lot more anxiety than depression, but like, I'm not opposed to being anxious. Like if one of the kids has to have surgery or like if I'm in grad school and taking a huge test, like it's very normal for me to experience anxiety. That's just a normal human emotion, right? But I'm talking about like debilitating, completely irrational anxiety. Like I know the facts are this and my emotions are this and I cannot figure out how to bridge the gap. Like everything is fine. There's nothing wrong, nothing wrong. And I feel like I'm imploding. And so this was so abnormal, I knew that it was time to probably see a doctor, time to see a counselor. And so I did that. And so I had monthly sessions with a, a counselor that kind of specializes in guys in ministry that I've learned since then. It's very classic for guys like me to go through this, especially around um, midlife, around the age 40. And so I met with him once a month, and he had just great counsel for me. Love the Lord, love the, love the word. Um, he knew exactly what I was dealing with. He'd seen this before. And he would just give me good counsel on how to get healthy. And, man, it was good. But the downside was I kind of put myself subtly in a unique category. Because he was telling me there's lots and lots of guys that have gone through this, and I've talked to a lot of guys and walked with a lot of guys going through this, and you're very, very similar. But deep down I was thinking, no, those are like the really weak guys. Those are just kind of the weirdos. Like, I have it a little more together than those guys, right? So I would kind of listen and take his advice, but maybe 90%. I would not go the full 100%. And I found out time after time, because I was holding back and not totally doing what he was counseling me to do, I just paid the price. I thought I knew better. I wasn't like those other guys. I'm better than those guys. They're not... I'm not messed up like that. And time after time, he was proved right. I thought I knew better. He was proved right. And it probably took me longer to get healthy than it needed to because I just honestly thought that I knew better. I experienced, in a sense, the opposition of God by being prideful. I could have been blessed by getting healthier sooner, but I chose not to because deep down, I just didn't really want to listen all the way. I was prideful. I was prideful. But here's the, the beauty of this text. We don't just leave with a warning. We also have a beautiful promise. Look at it. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to who? To the humble. He gives grace to the humble. He gives grace. He showers grace. He's not stingy with his grace. Those who are humble need grace, and that's what they get. Those who know they're humbled by their sin need grace, and that's what God is willing to give. Those who are humbled by persecution, like Peter's first audience, get grace from God, and that's exactly what they need. Those who come to the end of themselves, whether it's alcohol or any other thing, and know they're powerless to manage their own sin through self-effort. They need grace. And that's exactly what God loves to give those who are humble. Isn't that good news? 
Isn't that such a blessing to hear that this morning? That the, that the path of humility, doesn't that sound so much better than persisting in pride and having God be on the opposite team? Let's keep reading. Verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So, so in light of God being on the imposing team of those who are prideful and, and giving grace to the humble, Peter says again, a therefore or a for or a since or because. Um, the, 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 these statements are being linked together logically. You see it there? He's saying, you don't want God opposing you, therefore I want you to do something. See it there? Meaning humility is the only logical and safe approach. Humble yourselves, therefore. It could very easily say, therefore, humble yourselves. In light of what I said in verse 5, the only logical thing to do, humble yourselves. And then humble yourselves how? Look at what it says. It says, under the mighty hand of God. Now, in this context, the mighty hand of God is a metaphor for something that's very fearful, but also something that's very comforting. Something that's very fearful, but also something that's very comforting. It's kind of like this. My, my grandpa, uh, on my mom's side, he worked as a, what's called a farmhand for most of his life, meaning he was just a hired man for a guy who owned a lot of land on, on a farm. And so he milked cows for a lot of his life. He fixed machinery. He just did things manually his whole life. And as a result, uh, when he was old, uh, he had these mammoth hands, right? A lot of you guys know guys like this who've done manual labor their whole lives. This dude... My, my grandpa, he had fingers probably the size of two of mine. Just these big meat hooks for hands, right? And he loved, he was a gentleman, but he would come up on me and put those meat hooks on my knee when I was a little kid, a little skinny kid, and just like grab me right there, you know? I do this to my kids now. It's just fun just to get them right there, you know, with a claw. And they like jump and it kind of tickles, but it kind of hurts. And you're just like, ah, you know? And he would do that to me. Like, we'd have to sleep on the couch because they didn't have a very big house. But when I was little, I had to sleep on the couch. And he'd come in. And I don't know why he did this, but he would call us dead pigeons. Like, oh, a couple dead pigeons out here on the couch. And he'd come over and just like, Rant! and just like, get you. And like, oh, gosh. And, uh, and so my, my grandpa's hands were a fearful thing because he was so strong. You know what I mean? Like, from the elbows on down, just like break steel. You know what I mean? Just like that. But they were also very gentle and very comforting. Um, like my grandpa could give the best back rubs, right? Because he's so strong. And my wife has a back that's like a brick wall. She's got all this tension. And so her love language is, is, is back rubs. And so we'd go visit grandpa and he would give her a back rub and like hardly anyone's strong enough to like get in on her knots. Like it wears me out, you know? And, and, but my grandpa Taylor with those huge hands, he could, he could do that and it'd be very comforting for my wife, right? So hands can bless and hands can also be fearful, right? And, and, and that's kind of like a picture, you know, the fearful nature but also the comforting nature of this phrase, the mighty hand of God that we find. See, the mighty hand of God for a certain audience in the Bible is a very, very fearful thing. This, this phrase is used a lot in reference to Pharaoh in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, where Pharaoh hardened his heart 
against God and the mighty hand of God came down on Pharaoh and it was not comfortable for him. So if God is God and he is, then it's good and right for us to humble ourselves under this power. But if those mighty hands are powerful enough to to want to humbly submit to them, then check it out. They're probably also powerful enough to bring comfort as as well, to lift you up. If, If they can be powerful enough to be fearful, they're probably powerful enough to lift you up when you're in despair, to lift you up. I'm strong enough. I got you. I can lift you up when you're hurting. I can lift you up when you're feeling debilitating anxiety. This is what Peter is getting at in this text. This is what he's getting at in this text. Let's get into the details of it, of verse 6 and 7. You'll see two great promises that flow from humility. First, we see that we're to humble ourselves, and if we do so, God will exalt us. And second, we're to see that if we humble ourselves by casting our anxiety on him, he will care for us. Humble ourselves, he'll exalt us. And humble ourselves sometimes brings anxiety, and he'll care for us. Let's take a look at the first one. Verse 6, look at it again. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Why? So that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a peculiar phrase, that God himself, the exalted one, is going to exalt me? Like, how does that work? Well, what this means is he will lift you up. Just like I just got done saying. He will lift you up. And see, here's why this was so meaningful to this first audience that first heard this. Because this first church that Peter's writing to 2,000 years ago in what is modern-day Turkey, they were marginalized. They were persecuted. They, they, They were pushed aside. And God is saying to them, this humble place that you find yourself in, it's a good place. Why? Because it's just a matter of time. What does it say? At the proper time. See it there? Another translation says, in due time, he will exalt you. He will lift you up. It's just a matter of time. All that means is it's just a matter of time when it's all going to be made right. When it's all going to be made right. Your suffering is only for a season. And it may not be until Jesus returns to make all things right. It's no promise for tomorrow, though it might be tomorrow. There's no promise for five years from now, though that might happen. For some of us, it may take death and seeing God raise us from the dead. And he comes and he returns and he judges all the wickedness and makes all things right. He says, behold, I'm coming and I make all things new. It may even be that day. And there's much about that day in the, first, in the book of 1 Peter. And so it stands to reason that he has his eye set on that day when he's trying to comfort those that are on the margins and suffering and feeling the weight of their humility when he says, it's just a matter of time. At the proper time, he's going to lift you up. And this life is just a mist, the Bible says. And then, we, and then we, we will see him and we will be like him and we'll be raised and be with him and it's all going to be worth it. In the proper time, he will lift you up. So take heart. No matter the reason, if you're humbled and you draw near to your heavenly Father, in Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, there's coming a day when you will finally rest in God lifting you up. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may 
exalt you or lift you up. Verse 7, casting your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Look at, look at this. Look at, look at the text again. I want you to see the connection between humility and casting cares. See that in verse 6 and 7? Peter's making the explicit connection between humility and dealing with your anxiety in a godly way. See that in 6 and 7? The, the assumption here is that those who are experiencing anxiety, let me say that again, those who are experiencing humility, oftentimes that produces anxiety. Think about it. If, if you've been humbled through addiction to alcohol and you've destroyed relationships or you're facing jail time, that's going to naturally produce some anxiety. If you're being persecuted for your faith, like Christians in Egypt right now, brutally persecuted for their faith, to the point where some are dying a martyr's death, that naturally is going to produce some anxiety. Knowing how needy you are, how humble you are, if, if, you're, if you're humbled by losing your job, if you're humbled by your, your kids just not listening to you, that's going to produce some anxiety. Or if you're just humbled by your just straight-up old-fashioned sin that we all have, right? It's like, Lord, how can I manage the sin? I don't know how to manage the sin. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. When you're humbled in your desperation, that can be anxiety-provoking, is it not? Can we not relate to that? And thank God that he knows this. And he provides a word of help to us this morning in this very sensitive and challenging place. What does he say? He says, like any good father, come to me. Come to me. I will help you. Don't try to bear it on your own. You weren't built for that. You were built for me. And you were built for glorifying me. And when you cast your anxieties on me, verse 7, and see me bear them with you, you know that I'm God and that I love you. And this will bring me great glory and this will bring you great joy. So don't just stop with humility. Let your humility bring you to me. Let the anxiety of your humility join us together. Cast those anxieties on me. Why? Because I can bear them. I'm able. I want to bear them. That's what God is saying here in verse 6 and 7. You see that? Isn't it amazing to hear that our God is not aloof? He's not off somewhere in space, cold, distant, unfeeling, unfriendly. He's not some weird old man upstairs, the big guy upstairs or whatever. That's not our God. Our God is intimate. He wants to know our anxieties. He wants to cast, have us cast them upon him. And here's the deal. This is the beauty of the gospel. The reason why he can say that and why he loves to say that is because he has shared this experience. He's not far off in distance because, because he's become one of us. He's entered into our, our human experience. He knows our frame. He knows our neediness. I love the Christmas hymn from O Holy Night. To our weakness, he is no stranger. That's so beautiful. He shared in it when he became human in Jesus. 
So he's quick to remind us to come to him because he, he too knows what it's like to be humbled. How amazing is that? God himself too knows what it's like to be humbled. What a strange statement. Fully biblical statement. And since he has done that, he has compassion on us. He calls us to come to him. He's more than willing to help. Is that not good news this morning? That's so encouraging to me. You might think I stand up here and, and have it all together. You guys have no idea how in over my head I feel so, so often. I can feel anxiety. I'm, I'm way healthier than I was a year and a half ago, but I still feel anxiety. I'm not some super Christian just because I stand up here every week. And this is, this is good for me to read. Man, I need this. Some of you this morning might not be Christians. And let me just give you a, a, just kind of a, a window into the heart of Christianity. God is more than willing to care for you. That doesn't happen in Islam. That doesn't happen in Buddhism. That doesn't happen in Hinduism in the same way. That doesn't happen in a secular, atheist, humanistic worldview. That God of the universe would care for us. This is unique. And he's more than willing to embrace you and welcome you in. He's willing to bear your burdens. Do you have burdens? I got burdens. So, so here's the question. Who's helping you bear those burdens? On those days when you feel so overwhelmed and in over your head with whatever it is, who's helping you bear those burdens? Wouldn't it be amazing to know that the all-powerful God of the universe is helping you bear those burdens? And that's the beauty of the truth of Christianity. God is not far off and distant. He is there and he is not silent. He is there and he is near. Look at what the verse says. Casting all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. He cares for you. If you had the, 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 the highest, poly, like if you're, if you're living in some country that has a king and the king is revered above all else and you hear that that, that king has heard about you and he knows you and he knows that you're suffering and that king invites you in, how would you feel? Man, you would feel privileged. This is not a human king. This is king of the universe. He says he cares for you. Some of you this morning might feel like nobody cares for you. And that should never be the case in the church. That should never be the case in the body of Christ. That's why we structure our lives around small groups where we can have structures of care for us to help one another called city groups. But even if you do feel that way this morning, at least hear this, God cares for you. And you can embrace a life of the blessing and joy of humility because he will lift you up if you trust and treasure Jesus as your Savior and Lord. He cares. That's why he came. If you repent of sin and trust and treasure the good news of what God the Father has done through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, he will care for you. This reality is the best news in the world. There's no joy in life apart from humility. There just isn't. You weren't built for that. You weren't built for pride. You were built to find the, your, your, your proper place at the foot of the cross and rejoicing in the empty tomb and seeing the humility that flows from that. That's what makes your life come alive. When it's not all about you, when it's all about God, 
and when it's all about others. And when we fail, it's so good to experience the humility again of repentance and seeing God be God and being more than willing to meet your need because he cares for you as you repent. And that's, that's good news this morning. And when we do that, God is glorified and we are satisfied. Let's pray. Father, would you help us apply the truths of these verses to our lives in a powerful way? We can't do it on our own. Yet again, we ask for your help. May it be so this week. In Jesus' name, amen.